Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. On December 18, 2015, Etherton Gallery hosted a panel discussion on prison reform in conjunction with an exhibit by famed photographer Danny Lyon. Up first on 30 Minutes, Etherton Gallery director Hannah Glassman will introduce the exhibit and panelists who include Arizona State Senator Steve Farley, journalist Margaret Regan, attorney Lizette Flores, and independent consultant Grace Gamas. The panel is moderated by Tucson Weekly political reporter and Zona Politics host Jim Ninsel. This is part one of a multi-part series. Welcome. I'm Hannah Glasson. I'm the director of Etherton Gallery, and we want to welcome you to another of our panel discussions when we uh, have an opportunity to do something like this. We try to put something together, so keep an eye out for other things that we do in conjunction with the different shows that we have. Our current exhibit, which is up right now, and I hope you take some time to look at it after you will have time. Um, is called Conversations with the Dead. Uh, it's a body of 80 photographs that was taken in 1967 by the social documentary photographer Danny Lyon. Lyon was only 25 years old when he was allowed to go into six of the 13 prisons that made up the Texas penitentiary system. At that time, there were 12,500 prisoners there. Today, there are 200,000 inmates. Arizona, which has the sixth highest incarceration rate in the nation and the highest of any border state, also has the distinction of having a 40% recidivism rate. As of November, there were 42,847 inmates in Arizona's prisons. Nearly 17% of those inmates are held in the state's expanding private prison system. We bring you a distinguished panel tonight to discuss just a small part of what the discussion must be about prison reform, including why prison populations continue to grow, why the state funds and advocates for private prisons, detention centers for immigrant families, and how prison affects the long-term hopes and lives of incarcerated and formerly incarcerated individuals and their loved ones. Serving his fifth term in elected office, Arizona State Senator Steve Farley represents Tucson's District 9 in the Arizona State Senate. One of his many legislative priorities is public safety. To that end, he has called for the Department of Corrections to return to its mission of correcting behaviors that put inmates in prison, advocating on programs to prepare inmates for reintroduction to society, and greater oversight on private prison contractors. He says that we can no longer afford to put private prison profit above public safety. A longtime highly honored journalist in Tucson, author Margaret Regan's most recent book, Detained and Deported, Stories of Immigrant Families Under Fire, was just last week named a Southwest Book of the Year. That's great. And Margaret has some copies here, too, if you didn't get yours yet. And she'll even sign it for you, I think. The book investigates conditions in Arizona's grim detention centers, many of them run by the for-profit Corrections Corporation of America, 
the 30-year-old company that is the builder and operator of numerous prisons, jails, and detention centers on behalf of the Federal Bureau of Prisons and the states. Lizette Flores serves as general counsel and policy advisor for the Senate Democratic Caucus, where she staffs the Committee on Rules, the Committee on Judiciary, and the Committee on Federalism, Mandates, and Fiscal Responsibility. She provides advice on issues relating to corrections, among other issues. Prior to joining the Senate Democratic staff, Lizette served as the Executive Director of the Immigration and Legal Services Department of Friendly House, a nonprofit provider, Phoenix provider of social and legal services. Dr. Grace Gomez holds a PhD in Justice Studies from Arizona State University and a Master's of Science in Mexican-American Studies and Public Health from the University of Arizona. A mother, activist, and scholar, Gomez's research, coupled with her own personal experience in what she calls the criminal punishment system, gives her insight into its structure and operation, particularly its impact on women and loved ones. Her recent research explores the role of motherhood in relation to the long-lasting effects imposed by criminal identity. And our host, Jim Ninsel, has covered politics for the Tucson Weekly and Arizona Public Media for two decades. He is now the host of Zona Politics, airing Sundays on the CW Tucson and KXCI Community Radio. The Arizona Newspaper Association named him a 2014 Journalist of the Year, and the Association of Alternative News Media honored his long-running Tucson Weekly column, The Skinny, as the best alt-weekly political column in the country. He also serves as Southern Arizona correspondent for Phoenix PBS affiliate KAET Channel 8 and teaches government reporting at the U of A School of Journalism. And with that, we will start, and uh, Jim is going to start with a question for Lisette. Thank you, Hannah, and uh, thank you, uh, Etherton Gallery, for hosting us tonight, and thank all of you for uh, coming out. Lizette, why don't we just get started with a rundown on what is happening with the uh, state prison system. Uh, we, we heard 42,000 inmates. Uh, what's the trend like? What are they anticipating in the future? Uh, and, and what's happening on the, on the private prison front? Um, well, as of November of this year, there are over 42,000 um, individuals incarcerated in um, Arizona's prisons. That's the state prisons and private prisons. And the trend has been going up, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, just this week, um, there was a private prison that was awarded a contract um, to house a thousand inmates. Um, and that's going to be at a rate of $66.35 per person. All the contracts that Arizona has with the private prisons are anywhere from 90% to 100% occupancy rate. So when you're entering into multi-year contracts where you're guaranteeing that they're going to be at 90 to 100% capacity, obviously that's going to have an impact in the public policy in regards to sentencing reform because you have these monies that are going to these private prisons. So right now it's for 1,000 um, beds. Um, this session that's coming up, um, with the authorization of the legislature, another 1,000 beds will be awarded. Um, so that will be for a total of 2,000. 
beds. The contract right now for the 1,000 beds is for 17 years. So when you add up the numbers, we're looking at about over $400 million that's going to go into the private prisons. That's money that's not being used in other capacities. Um, right now, the the appropriations for the private uh, for correct for the Department of Corrections is over one billion dollars. Over the last several years, that has increased about forty percent. Whereas on the other end, we see the fights to fund, for example, education. You know, the universities received um, over almost a hundred million dollars in cuts this past session. And we're looking at the K through 12 funding. So this is money that is going to the private, well, to the Department of Corrections instead of other areas of social need that maybe can prevent future incarceration. So um, when you have these contracts, I think the impact is that unlike other states that right now are doing sentencing reform, either through initiative or through legislature, for example, Missouri just um, did Fan, uh, like they reduce their truth and sentencing laws, meaning like right here in Arizona, nonviolent offenders have to serve 85% of their sentence. That's mandated. They can't um, get released on on earned credit time. So, you know, southern states are changing. Utah just had a huge reform of their sentencing code. California did through Proposition 47 where um, property and drug offenses were reclassified from felonies to misdemeanors. State of California is going to save about $150 million a year just on that proposition alone. And instead, what they're going to do with those monies is they're going to put it into education and substance and drug treatment. So, um, you know, I think right now with the contracts we have, Unfortunately, it seems like we're, we have no flexibility to really organically look at sentencing reform and see how we can fix Arizona systems because unlike other states whose, that trend is going down, ours keeps going up and up and up every year. Does the state save money by using private prisons versus the cost of, of public prisons, leaving the cost of incarceration? Aside, what's what? What is there an economical benefit? Unfortunately, we do not know. The last report that was issued, because the state of Arizona used to have a, co a cost and quality comparison study, it showed that in fact we were not saving money. Um, the legislature instead, what they did is they repealed that study uh, back in 2012. So since 2012, we do not have a way of actually knowing if the private prisons are in fact saving the state of Arizona any money. If you don't like the numbers, you get rid of the study. That's why I actually have a bill that's already in place that Lisette helped, helped me um, draft this year that will reinstate that study and also have other studies, uh, other aspects such as recidivism rate at, uh, at uh, private prisons and do an actual fair comparison. And, and uh, Steve, what, what kind of reforms do you think are needed in, in uh, the justice system here in Arizona? Well, there's a whole, a whole heck of a lot right now. I mean, just the procurement, the, how the private prisons got what they're doing. Uh, that, the latest 2,000-bed contract, there was uh, one respondent to the contract, Correction Corporations of America. Correction Corporations of America also had as their lobbyist uh, a guy named Chuck Coughlin, who was also Jan Brewer's chief advisor while she was governor, and he did not give up his lobbying. He was still lobbying for it. And that's the type of close connection we've had with the lobbyists from the private prisons 
with the government. So that's that's a, a key a key problem we need to deal with. Um, one of the things that actually is a hopeful thing, so you don't get too upset about all these horrible things happening in Arizona, um, w there is a move towards being able to provide increasing treatment programs for substance abuse for prisoners before they're released. Now that ought to be a no-brainer. It ought to be, I mean, if you're like me, I was thinking, didn't we do this already anyway? But uh, the estimate are that about uh, out of the approximately 10,000 10, prisoners who are released every year, about 70% of them are estimated to have an active substance abuse problem, which is probably what got them in trouble in the first place. So if, we're, if we treat these people before they're released, when we still have control over that, and there, there's a program that allows them to get off 90 days early in exchange for going through a whole treatment program, um, it hasn't been used very much by the Department of Corrections. Last year there was a bill sponsored by Republican Steve Pierce that really got a great distance towards almost passing to increase the amount dramatically. Um, it fell prey to Speaker David Gowan and some of his uh, little things going on at the end of the session that he does. Uh, but this year there, the, there's another bill that's going through that, that will do the same thing that's being this time uh, sponsored by Republican Nancy Bartow, who is a conservative uh, chair of the Health Committee in the Senate, uh, with the support of a number of other conservative Republicans to make that happen. Because that is a positive direction that is happening in the country in general. Um, the, the conservative movement is starting to turn away from the private prison industry, in part because they're starting to see the corrections institute, the, the corrections departments as being the next welfare state. They see the expenses going way up. And, and they don't want that to happen from a perspective of they want to cut the taxes more. So there are actually some nonprofit uh, organizations in Texas that are starting to, from a Republican perspective, say that they need to, to reform prisons, have, get, get the mandatory sentencing reduced, um, all, a lot of those types of things. Um, and that's starting to get around the country. So I really think that we will be able to take at least the baby step of increasing the treatment programs. Um, although at the same time, having talked to some people who, who have been in there and, and in prison and understand the systems, we have to make sure that the Department of Corrections doesn't ding people out of eligibility for these treatment programs. Because in what seems to me like a cash 22 situation, if you have a small disciplinary infraction, you can be classified as no longer eligible for the treatment program. So you get released at your normal time with a substance abuse problem. <laughs> that doesn't make a lot of sense. But sometimes when you go inside the corrections institutions, you discover that the, the world doesn't always make sense. A little bit like the legislature. You are listening to a panel discussion on prison reform presented by Etherton Gallery on 30 Minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. Grace, you work with, uh, I think, mostly moms who are, are getting out of prison, but people who are being released from prison. Is, is that sort of uh, treatment, uh, additional drug treatment, uh, going to be something that will, will help folks? Well, I actually don't do one-on-one -on -one client services. Oh. So my, my past research has been with formerly incarcerated mothers, formerly incarcerated and convicted mothers, and kind of looking at really expanding how we understand collateral consequences of a criminal record to look at the way that a conviction history touches even what we might think is intangible and 
and definitely the things that are very intimate in, in our lives so that the criminal punishment system really touches every facet of your life. So I don't do one-on-one -on -one direct services with people, but my past research mm -hmm, has, has been on that. But so folks who have been system involved, um, including myself, will, will tell you that it's, it's, the system isn't designed for you to succeed. It's designed to keep you. Um, and much of the political energy that, that I see uh, among legislators and other government officials and state actors are focused on um, what could be considered the, the sexy buzzword of the day, reentry um, and recidivism and justice reinvestment. And I believe that those three R's insufficiently address the gross racial and other disparities that our system is predicated upon. And those are the questions or the topics that nobody's really talking about. When we talked before, you talked about just when folks get out of prison, they may not have enough money to get an ID card so they can even become eligible to go to a nonprofit to get some services. Right, really basic things are insurmountable barriers for people. So coming out of prison and not having anywhere to go, or no people to go to, not having any money, having been um, you know, destitute when you went into the system and you remain destitute afterwards, and you can't participate in any programming until you have a state ID, and that ID costs $12. <laughs> and you don't have the $12, you're homeless. <laughs> and that becomes a, a significant barrier to even being able to participate in these reentry programs. You get your feet on the ground, but you still have the challenge of uh, reconnecting with your children who are right. probably in foster cares. Uh, or, or with uh, perhaps another family member or something like that. Right, so the majority of, of women who find themselves in the system first have been victims of, of physical and sexual abuse. They're also primarily the primary custodians of, the, of their children. So what that means is that if there isn't anyone to take care of their children, those children are given to the system to care for. And if their rights are not severed, they face all of these obstacles to, to rejoining with their family. So the, the one example that I gave is, is from a woman that participated in the project that I did for my, my dissertation research. And she talked about really not having anything or anywhere to go. And once she was able to find housing and secure housing for herself, so there's all these things that you have to you have to prove before you can actually get your children back. You have to you have to have a job, and there's so many barriers around even um, getting employment. Um, you um, have to have a safe place to live, but you also have to have food in the refrigerator, and you also have to have furniture, and you have to have mattresses and sheets for those mattresses, and you need to have shampoo, and you need to have toothpaste, and all of these things that most people don't really think about or, or consider, these become obstacles to getting your children back. Um, so it's, it's a very vicious cycle, and these are things that reentry programs do not really deal with.
I actually want to touch on that again, but I actually want to bring Margaret in here because your book looks at what happens when undocumented people end up actually in the federal prison system and not the state prison system. But uh, you were coming across stories of women who were caught up in some kind of a criminal activity and then ended up behind bars and lost their children. And there's one woman, Yolanda, and, yeah. and to talk a little bit about what it was like, her story, and then also just the experience of visiting uh, yeah. these prisons and, okay. and seeing what the conditions were for folks who were in detention on the federal level. Yeah, I'm really interested to hear what Grace had to say because so many of the undocumented women that I talked to who were caught up in the system were physically and sexually abused by men, um, whether they're American citizens or immigrants themselves. Um, they're very vulnerable people. They're the poorest people with the worst jobs, um, and they're very vulnerable to these men. Um, a woman whose case I followed pretty closely in my book, her name was Yolanda. She was 32 years old. I met her in Eloy Detention Center, which is one of the biggest detention centers in the country, and it's right here in Arizona, and it's the only one in Arizona that accepts women. I think they have about 600 beds for women. Um, and it's Corrections Corporation of America. I'm not sure if I said that. And one of the lines I have in my book is that for every day that Yolanda was in Eloy missing her children, the Corrections Corporation of America made $122. Um, this young woman had uh, come up from Mexico at the age of 15. She'd worked for many years in Phoenix. The reason that she got caught was that... Um, she was in a dispute with her boyfriend, the father of her two youngest children. The police were called in. She ended up getting arrested. Um, ultimately, she was put into Eloy after serving um, a sentence, uh, a time served in jail. She was put in Eloy, and while she was there, the guy that used to regularly beat her up had the kids. He had custody of the children, and she was in detention, and she was fighting deportation. And the reason she didn't just accept deportation immediately was because if she had, she most likely would have had her parental rights severed. She would have lost those kids permanently. So she ended up being in the Eloy Detention Center for two years. She had three young children that she saw very sporadically. She could only see them if somebody would bring them down. She lived up in Surprise, I believe. Somebody, you know, doing that three to four hour round trip to bring the kids to see her. The first time I went to visit Yolanda at Eloy, I got a real eyeful of the way families and friends of detainees are treated. I had permission from the lawyer to be there. My name was on the records. I drove all the way up to Eloy, and they would not let me into that prison. They said, we don't have your name. You're not allowed to be here. So no big deal for me. I just went back to Tucson. But if I were a family member or a friend, I would have encountered the same Fate, but the t so two weeks later, I finally got permission to go in. I mean, it was a hellhole. I I couldn't believe just even the way the families were treated. Like you have to surrender all of your uh, your wedding ring, you know, your earrings, your jacket, everything on you. You're not allowed to bring in a bottle of water, um, and they're extremely harsh to the families coming in. And I waited in the waiting room with all these families of little kids. The guards were horrible to these little kids who were waiting there to visit their parents. Uh, one little boy swinging on a gate um, got really yelled at by a guard and said, get off there. There was never any feeling of, oh, are you going to visit your mommy today? The way ordinary people 
talk to children, but so it was very much like a prison, and I'm not at all familiar with prisons, but I found it horrifying. Families aren't allowed to bring in food for the children. They're not allowed to bring in coloring books or activities. So when the children finally get in to see their parents in the visiting room, they get bored and cranky and fussy. Plus, it's a scary place for kids. Uh, when I was in there, finally I got in after waiting a long time to speak with Yolanda. It is a contact visit, which not all the detention centers are. The mothers and fathers could sit there talking to each other, and I was sitting next to a couple and their little four-year-old daughter was on the floor having a big tantrum, and why wouldn't she be? She's four years old, and she was in this place that was very scary. Um, so Yolanda's situation was very grim. She was there for two years, um, and as I said, she could have been deported easily and gotten out of there, but she wanted to stay for the sake of her children. There are many women like her in there. The reason I know about her and the reason... I was able to write about her is that she happened to get championed by a pro bono attorney in Tucson, wonderful woman named Nina Rabin, who's a professor at the law school who pursues these cases. But unlike even in the criminal uh, prison system, people in immigration detention do not have the right to an attorney. They just flat out do not have the right to an attorney. They can pay for one if they want to, but they're not entitled to a uh, um, what do you call it, when the government pays for your attorney pro bono. So she was fortunate in that a lawyer fought for her, and very interestingly, her case was resolved in the end. Oh, oh wait, you should, people oh. should buy the book to find that out. Oh, oh okay, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> but, 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 I mean, it was only because she had this attorney fighting doggedly for her she went all through the appeals course in the immigration system under the Justice Department. She lost every step of the way. They were going to deport her. But um, she had been sexually trafficked. That's one of the many terrible things that happened to Yolanda. And um, what did I say? So Im Im Homeland Security was adamant that she had to be deported. She couldn't get permission to stay. And this Nina Rabin found another avenue through the Justice Department. She ended up getting a visa for the victims of sexual trafficking and she finally got out of there and now she's fine she got her kids back so happy ending but as other activists have told me there are plenty of women in Eloy with the very same stories who are going to end up getting deported because they don't have attorneys to help them I want to go back to Steve and just get an idea at uh, the legislature is there uh, any appetite towards uh, providing people who get out of prison with with more financial resources, uh, you know, beyond the the drug treatment that you've been talking about, uh, so that they're they do have a chance to get back on their feet as they're released from prison. Well, th there is still a, a prevailing attitude that <clears throat> prison is for punishment, not for rehabilitation, and that's one that I, I that there are certain individual members on the majority party who are starting to see the difference. Uh, because it, seemed, it should seem patently obvious that if somebody gets the treatment they need and the ability to be a contributing citizen, then they won't be coming back to prison and they won't be victimizing somebody else and they will be figuring out how they can contribute to the economy and make their lives better. Um, but that connection isn't necessarily being made very, very well in the legislature right now. Um, <clears throat> you still have a lot of the, and I'm not sure the Donald Trump campaign is helping very much in this regard. Um, we, we've 
return to a general zeitgeist in this in this country in this state that that we're terrified and the best way to approach terrified is to reject people to lock up people or to kill people and that's not what's going to be helpful we have to get back to the point where we realize that true safety comes with the community actually embracing people helping them when they fall and getting them back on their feet because so much of this has to do with poverty and when you see these figures going up, you see the prisons, the prisons, prisoners' amounts are going up. But at the same time, in child welfare, we see the, the the children who are in the care of the state going up dramatically. And that has all happened since we stopped paying for prevention and early intervention programs in the case of child welfare in 2009. Um, we stopped funding our schools, more or less. We're now 50th in the country. And schools are probably the most effective tool we have at eliminating poverty, um, particularly public schools, community colleges, universities, all these things have been cut. So are all the things that we have that reduce poverty, and poverty is associated with people being in prison. Uh, when, when people don't have the ability to get something to eat, they're going to find some way of making it happen. If they get out of prison and they don't have any money to be able to survive, they can't even get an ID card they will find other ways of making money and, and they may not be legal. And that's going to create further things. But as Lisette met, mentioned, if we're guaranteeing a 90% occupancy rate on these long-term prison contracts, then we have to create a product for the private prison companies to imprison. So that agitates against the idea of reducing. These whole treatment, these whole pre-treatment programs, we just did that treatment program, and all the 70% of the prisoners who went with active, uh, at, at active addictions didn't have those addictions anymore, and they were released. We wouldn't need any of these beds that we've just contracted for because recidivism rates get cut so low. We'll have to leave it there. You've been listening to remarks made at a panel discussion hosted by Etherton Gallery on prison reform in conjunction with an exhibition by famed photographer Danny Lyons. Speakers included Etherton Gallery director Hannah Glassman, and panelists included Arizona State Senator Steve Farley, journalist Margaret Regan, attorney Lizette Flores, and independent consultant Grace Gamez. The panel was moderated by Tucson Weekly political reporter and Zona Politics host Jim Ninsel. This has been Part 1 of a multi-part series. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Shogger.